You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Norway announces a new and improved naval missile. Canada and the EU get together to worry about the US. And should renters be able to ask to see a reference for their landlord? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers, who seemed least likely to have anything better to do with their Friday evening, are Carlotta Ribello, Nick Moniz and Thomas Lewis. They'll discuss the day's big stories, and we'll have live music from Rhett Miller of Old 97s. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. For obvious reasons, many European countries have taken a close interest in missile defence these last couple of years, that interest generally increasing in proportion to their proximity to a border with Russia. Norway, which has an actual border with Russia, has today announced that it rather is starting work on the development of the next generation of naval strike missile to be built in cahoots with Germany. Norway's current naval strike missile has been been purchased by at least 13 other countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Elizabeth Braw, Senior Associate Fellow at the European Leadership Network and author of the forthcoming Goodbye Globalisation to be published in February by Yale University Press. Um, Elizabeth, first of all, is this a, a natural evolution in the Norwegian naval strike missile or, or have they tried to speed things up due to recent events? Well, um, Andrew, what we're seeing now in in European armed forces is that they have discovered, or politicians, I think, have discovered that uh, they've been paying rather a lot of attention to uh, armies, and they've discovered that uh, they ought to be paying attention to the navies as well. Now, the UK is a little bit different because the Royal Navy has such a long and storied history, but in many countries, the navy is an afterthought, and that is very regrettable because what we have seen uh, Russia do is uh, harass uh, other countries uh, in, in the naval space. And China has, uh, for for its part, been expanding its navy extremely rapidly. It's now the world's largest navy. So it is good that the Norwegians are uh, upgrade, making this uh, uh, modest, but still uh, noteworthy upgrade to its uh, naval capabilities. And what's also important to bear in mind or to, to remember is that the Norwegians are doing it in conjunction with the Germans. Uh, defense collaboration is always difficult, so well done them for getting it across the line. Norway is, of course, one of the great seafaring nations. Uh, Have they always been a little more enthusiastic about naval capabilities than a lot of other European countries? They have, and um, it's. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out, Andrew. Uh, Norway is a, a, a very significant seafaring nation, and is indeed about to hold a couple of very important uh, global shipping conferences. So uh, Norway is very important, uh, both on the on the civilian side, but as a result, also on the military side, uh, i.e. the naval side. So I'm not surprised they are doing this. And and, and uh, Norway, unlike uh, some other countries, really has hasn't been forgetting its navy. And uh, 
And it's important to to also uh, remember that they are innovating in this in in, the, in missile technology, which is very tricky, but which is uh, obviously indispensable if if your uh, naval vessels are going to be effective. Then they'll need uh, appropriate uh, appropriate weaponry. Not just they don't just need to be large uh, vessels. They need uh, the weapons to sit on those vessels. I mean, nevertheless, this new generation of missiles is not expected to enter service until 2035 uh, by when anything could have happened. I mean, it is, it's not unusual for defence procurement programmes to move at glacial pace, but is this a, a subject of concern among European militaries that it just takes far too long to get new kit on stream? It is. And, Andrew, the problem is that now everybody wants a kit at the same time. And, and this is, uh, this is a, a massive headache, uh, always is in the defence industry. So defence companies want guarantees by governments if they are to hire more workers. And most governments are reluctant to give such guarantees, or at least significant guarantees, because they don't know what the future will hold. And then, lo and behold, a major war comes along and governments need to increase defense spending and there are not enough workers to to make all the kit that these governments want and and uh, obviously in 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 the defense equipment space governments are the only customers so it really is tricky and 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 it's also not uh, the case that a defense manufacturer can hire anybody off the street these are very sophisticated jobs and you also need um uh, uh, some uh, degree of security clearance in order to to uh, join a defense manufacturer as, as a factory worker in, indeed in, in any other position. So it is a major bottleneck at the moment, uh, which means that even off-the-shelf um, uh, off-the-shelf products are, are having long delays, and and especially so uh, in products that include a long uh, a long period of of uh, R and D. They they will take even longer than would have been the case otherwise. I mean, is this something that we're likely to see more of from the Scandinavian countries, in particular, as Finland and presumably Sweden join NATO, that they will? play more of a role in manufacturing. Sweden in particular, of course, uh, despite its neutrality, has long had uh, an extremely vigorous and lucrative defence manufacturing industry. Yes, Sweden has a very strong defence manufacturing industry precisely because it was neutral for so many years, which meant that it had to um, manufacture its own military equipment. It didn't want to make itself dependent on on either side. So to this day, Sweden has a very uh, large and sophisticated defence manufacturing industry. And I think we'll see more collaboration between companies like Saab, and Bofors with with uh, companies, uh, other companies uh, within NATO, uh, simply because it makes so much sense to to ta- team up. It's not always easy, and customers, uh, governments are, are often very tricky customers because if it's more than one government, then there is more one more than one idea about what the details should be. But uh, collaboration clearly makes a lot of sense because these are very uh, costly undertakings for the defence manufacturers until they can start selling those products. Elizabeth Braw, thank you as always for joining us. You are listening to The Daily.
This is The Daily on Monocle Radio. It is fair to say of the annual EU-Canada summit that it rarely transfixes global attention. However, it is also reasonable to suggest that this year's gathering, currently underway in St John's, is of considerable import. Both the EU and Canada are preoccupied with one ongoing crisis, Russia's rampage in Ukraine, and broadly united in their concern about one looming potential crisis, i.e. the possibility that by this time next year, the world might once again be wondering how the phrase US President-elect Donald Trump ever became a thing that people said. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Thomas Lewis, Monocle's Toronto correspondent. Um, Thomas, first of all, is this summit commanding acres of coverage in Canadian newspapers? Well, I think acres might be being slightly generous, Andrew, but it is garnering a bit of interest, given that this is, I think, the first kind of in-person visit for this summit by the EU side of things in Canada uh, since since the... uh, uh, years of the, the lockdowns of the pandemic. Uh, and I think for the, the city of St. John's on the Atlantic coast in Newfoundland, you know, there has been quite a, quite a lot of interest given that part of the symbolism of this visit is that the future relationship between the EU and Canada and how to deepen that. And we saw today uh, the signing or the agreement at least of a new green alliance, for example. And part of that uh, will be these rather big sort of uh, underway construction of hydro Hydrogen, liquid hydrogen processing plants, which Canada has already been quite aggressively pitching to European governments, most notably Germany. The German Chancellor came on a visit last summer. Um, so, you know, th- those are things that have anchored, um, anchored the talk so far, Andrew. But as Prime Minister Trudeau himself said, these are complicated times. So there are lots of more international issues uh, taking lots of focus as well. In in Canada, or in Canadian politics generally, how much angst is there about the prospect of Donald Trump returning as US president? I mean, obviously, he and Justin Trudeau very much did not get along. Uh, it's a good question, actually, because I think you're seeing in Canada as well a kind of rise of a similar political rhetoric, particularly uh, among the Conservative Party here uh, and its leader, Pierre Polyèvre, uh, who is doing very well in the opinion polls pretty consistently. We're at least probably about a year, year and a half away from the next general election. But at the moment, the wind seems to be in his corner, but very much taking a lot of the kind of rhetoric from the Donald Trump era playbook. Uh, And I think, you know, there's quite a lot of focus among the commentary, at least, kind of of Canadian politics, maybe more focused on that than on Donald Trump. But I think for the for the EU and the Canadian leadership gathering in Newfoundland, Andrew, you know, there there is a real sense that maybe while the kind of waters are a little calmer in in terms of US politics, maybe now is the time to try and seal kind of longer term deal deals that if there is disruption again, if you want to see it that way, come the US presidential election next year, then at least that's one friendship that they will be able to rely on, I think, is how they're, they're approaching this meeting in Canada over these, these two days. Uh, there has been a lot of concern in Ukraine and among Ukraine's allies, especially since uh, war erupted properly again in the Middle East, that attention on Ukraine was ebbing. Is that as much of a thing in Canada, especially given that huge Ukrainian community in Canada, which we, we have talked about previously? 
Yes, absolutely. I believe the Ukrainian diaspora here is the largest outside of of, of Russia. And, you know, the, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is a very large, fairly powerful lobby group here that's done a lot to raise money for, for the Ukrainian military during the course of the war so far. I'd say it's fairly interesting that it hasn't, the conversation hasn't really felt as it's felt, say, in the US, where suddenly, you know, support and wavering support, at least, is, is kind of up for grabs. But we have seen recently, as I mentioned, the Conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, voting down in the House of Commons a proposal to initiate a free trade agreement with Ukraine between Canada and Ukraine. So whether that's the beginning of a sort of mood on the right in the country uh, that we're seeing similarly in the, in the US, kind of hard to tell at this stage. But I think so far, uh, you know, given the very, very long heritage that Canada has with Ukraine and Ukrainians, that, uh, you know, that kind of debate just hasn't really felt very conceivable. But we'll, we'll see, uh, we'll see how, how that goes. Justin Trudeau, it is worth mentioning, Andrew, has announced further military support of about 60 million Canadian dollars uh, to Ukraine's military effort today. That's largely around small uh, ammunition and small arms. Uh, so that, I think, will be an attempt to suggest that Canada is still with Ukraine uh, very much wholeheartedly shoulder to shoulder uh, during its war with Russia. And just finally, Thomas, on that newer crisis, the, the conflict in Gaza between Israel and Hamas, obviously it has had uh, echoes all over the world as that conflict uh, tends to attract attention even at the best of times in a way that no other conflict does. Is it, is it much the same story in Canada? How has Justin Trudeau been managing the public response? It has been much the same in Canada. Here in Toronto, where I'm speaking to you from, Andrew, over the past few weekends, if I'm counting correctly, there have been huge, huge protests uh, in the downtown of the city. Uh, And Justin Trudeau, like many other Western leaders, uh, is facing calls to call himself for a ceasefire. We saw outside some of the venues in Newfoundland that this EU-Canada summit is taking place. Rather small protests, but protests nonetheless calling uh, for an immediate ceasefire. And I think there's been kind of a balancing act uh, between, like in other governments, I guess, in the West, of of trying to meet the public mood in a way, but also trying to sort of uh, keep the sort of political vows that, say, countries like Canada and Israel have with each other. And that is proving to be uh, fairly difficult. But so far, Justin Trudeau has stuck to the similar line uh, of Israel having the right to defend itself while conducting its its military operations very firmly within the the rules of law. But, you know, depending who you ask, you know, in Canada, those who are attending these protests across the country, for them, I would I would argue that maybe doesn't feel like, if I, excuse me, feel like enough in this current stage of the war there, Andrew. Thomas Lewis in Toronto, thank you for joining us. You are listening to the Monocle Daily and for a contemplation now of an assortment of urbanism stories, I am joined by today's panel, which is Monocle Senior Foreign Correspondent Carlotta Ribello, also producer of this programme, and design editor Nick Moniz, not also producer of this programme. No, I wouldn't dare, Andrew. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I, I'm just now starting to wonder how that would go. Carlotta, should we give that a try at some point? I would love it. Do you, you can take Friday's production duties all you want. Andrew, given that we regularly do segments on, on a host of Monocle radio shows where I talk to you about chairs, mm. do you think you could stomach 30 minutes on chairs and why they matter? 
I mean, I'm, I, I don't have anything against chairs, Nick. I am sitting on one literally right but now. But is it, is it because I just... I, I, I'll be honest, it sounds very cushy. I basically get flown around the... the thank you, Carlotta. I basically get thrown, uh, flown around the world to go to various halls to look at newly finished seats. Is that is that the issue that you, have, that you seem to have? That's, that's, that's broadly it. Um, but moving seamlessly along, I understand that you have quite recently been doing that. You have been in the United Arab Emirates looking at, well, chairs. Yes, I have, and, o- and also sofas and tables. Always, uh, amazing. You know, we're, we're very and, and ping pong tables too, actually, to that matter. And that is, you can also sit on them. You can. Uh, you well, can actually, also... no. I th- that would depend on the ping pong table. I, I have known ping pong tables that you would not want to sit on. It would go badly for the ping pong table. Yeah, it could fold. And, and for the person sitting on it. Is this something that you've tested yourself? I, I, I haven't. And again, I think we may be deviating from whatever the point was. <laughs> the, the point is that uh, I, I was in the US for Dubai Design Week and the Sharjah Architecture Triennial, which both kind of kicked off at the same time, one followed the other. The first was Dubai Design Week, which actually is about more than chairs, Andrew. Uh, and and, and this, this is where it might, might fit into Carlotta's, I guess, urbanism expertise as, as not only producer of this show, but also producer of Monocle's The Urbanist. But it, it was essentially looking at, uh, essentially, it's a takeover of the Dubai Design District, which is a neighbourhood purpose-built to facilitate <laughs> and support uh, designers uh, in the region. Um, and, and as part of the event, yeah, they have a trade hall where you can go look at you can go look at chairs, which is nice and which I do like to do. But they also commission a host of installations in this particular neighbourhood, and the whole idea is about pushing and exploring the notions of how we can live better, both you know with uh, nice pieces of furniture, but also with, with the places that we actually call home. So there were things like this massive ping pong table that they installed down one long street. And the whole idea is that people could just walk along, uh, pick up a ping pong uh, baton, racket, I don't know what you call it. but Paddle? Paddle, yes, paddle. Pick up a mm. ping pong paddle and, and have a back and forth with a complete stranger. It was about 20 metres long. So you also had games like balls you, rolling. You'd have to hit the ball along, right? Was, well, no, <laughs> it was still a standard, I guess, width. But oh, the I length see, was I long. see, yes. So I, you, I, I was being willfully <laughs> obtuse there. This is, oh, my God, Carlotta, I don't know how you deal with this every Friday. but Welcome uh, to my life, uh, But uh, essentially, you know, the balls would kind of, spill over into other people's games and if you were, you know, maybe a little bit naughty like me. sounds like a recipe for absolute carnage. It was, but it, what, it, what it got, I mean somebody else's ball bounced into my game and I just seamlessly integrated that into my game and essentially took that ball, which some might consider bullying but I saw it as a great way to start a conversation with a stranger. And that's what this was you about. You say tomato. <laughs> exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's what this was about. It was about, I guess showing us that our public spaces you know, through this installation can be a, a place of great engagement. Uh, uh, another. Did, did, did you bring to bear on this encounter that Australian sporting spirit which wins us friends the world over. Yeah, well, I mean, I always think, you know, as an Australian, you believe that you can win anything and everything. <laughs> if you've ever been in Australia in the lead-up to any major sporting event, my particular favourite is the FIFA World Cup. You would think Australia is going to win it. Uh, and I certainly had a, a red-hot go at it. But, you know, that was that was just one example. Um, there was another one, that uh, another installation uh, that was all about reusing fishing wire to create s- sculpture. And the whole idea behind that is that we're often overlooking the materials that are right in front of us. Dubai, you know, it was a essentially a, a fishing village 50, 70 years ago uh, and these fishing fishing wire nets were in abundance and, it's, and, and now there's a, a host discarded and left behind. So it's about looking 
that was about making a comment on, I guess, the materials that we overlook and that we might be able to work with in future. Another brilliant project was a Carlotta. This is tell me if you would like this uh, in in a city or or if you would potentially report on it if it was rolled out. Uh, you know, bigger. Are, are you angling for another trip over here? I am essentially. Okay, but, fair uh, Natalie Harb, the, this uh, French designer, essentially built a, a platform of greenery and seating above a car park, and yes, it was miniaturized to the. Uh, Dubai Design District, three parking bays. But uh, the whole idea behind it was that, for the most part, parking spaces and parking lots in cities are are, are completely wasted. And and this was about reimagining and and thinking about different ways that we could build a new space. One is by going up and over. Uh, And I I don't know, is is that something that you've come across in in your production work, Carlotta? It's quite interesting because uh, in so many cities across the world that are car dependent, such as Dubai, uh, there is a question about you know, what do you do with the necessity of building car space? You know, um, there is, of course, public transit, but it doesn't work or is not as popular as perhaps uh, people would wish so, uh, to, uh, for it to be. So the car dependency remains there. And reimagining how you can create a bit more equity within parking spaces is a very interesting proposition, be it by creating green spaces. I know some places propose if it has to be covered car space, why can't the roof be solar panels gen- generating energy? And one of the things I found interesting when I was earlier this year in Dubai reporting as well is that, you know, the, of course, there is some criticism to, you know, the big steel and concrete towers and the metropolis that has been built there and the way, you know, it, it really highlights some of the inequalities that exist in the city. But at the same time, the fact that this is, you know, a country that's 50 odd years old, where so much development has happened so rapidly over the past five decades, really promotes an area for experimentation and you see a lot of risks being taken in architecture that take a while to then come to other parts of the world because there it might seem odd at first but then it kind of stays you know there's a reason why it was in the UAE that architectural glass was invented and now it's used everywhere um so uh, I'm quite here to I'm quite glad to hear that it's not just about chairs and long ping pong tables well <laughs> let's move along and I don't know if there is a link because I'm not sure if ping pong is an olympic sport actually it must be it is. surely of course it is, course it is. Uh, obviously we will it win is. gold we well, will definitely table tennis win gold. i yeah, think uh, it's uh, called australia will definitely win if it is a thing. But we are going to move along seamlessly, clearly, to uh, the Paris Olympics. I like this story very much because I'm a huge fan of stereotypical French insouciance, which we have had uh, from the mayor of Paris, who is basically saying, yeah, we're we're not ready. Uh, Our trains are all late. Um, They're all overcrowded and they're all filthy. I mean, yes, that's... You're not even paraphrasing. That, that's that's a, a quote uh, from Anne Hidalgo. You know, she was talking about the games infrastructure uh, because, of course, ahead of the Paris 2024 games, there is a lot of development going on into an investment going on into the city to, you know, get it ready. But, you know, Anne Hidalgo was saying that, you know, they're not going to be able to have it ready then or now for the current level of passengers, let alone the influx that's expected for the Olympics. Uh, and she basically was just giving a warning that, you know, brace that there will be places where simply there won't be enough trains. And 
no solution was offered from what I could gather. I mean, do, do we know how they're getting on generally? Are they going to have dug a long jump pit or anything by the by the time this kicks off? That I'm not sure, but I, I must say I wasn't surprised by this announcement given, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in Paris every month or so, uh, and the last few times... A lot, lot of chairs there, in Paris. There are lots of chairs, lots in, of Paris. chairs in Paris. Uh, you know, the last few times I've been, there's been some sort of issue with the metro there, so I just take to the streets on my feet or on a bike, uh, which is perhaps, I think, what people are probably going to have to do at the Olympics. I think that's just the reality of it. When you said take to the streets, I thought you were about to say in the sense of participating in the municipal tradition of throwing cafe tables at the riot police. Oh, yes, a member of the Yellow Vests. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that again, uh, this has been a show of seamless transitions. Would have been me. Uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this. But yes, I wouldn't be surprised if literally I was forced to join the protest as the only way of moving through the streets of Paris. Now, one thing that is interesting, though, staying in Paris is, of course, <laughs> this whole debate about the increasing investment um, that is happening ahead of the Olympics is also happening at the same time as the plan for the Grand Paris Express is uh, underway. This is a five to ten year plan that is currently underway. So, to... so the idea is the metro we have doesn't work, so we're <laughs> going to make it even bigger. So it's been, uh, yeah, already ongoing. And it's, you know, to double the territory that the metro network already serves. This would create, you know, you know, I don't know how many miles of new tracks, but 68 new metro stations, four new lines. When completed, it com- will transform Paris because it's not just about connecting the city centre, which, when the metro does work, works very well, but it's about connecting Grand Paris as well, which is, as we know, in big cities, the issues you have is with the influx of people that commute into the city every day and then go back to live in the suburbs or in the outer areas. And that's where Paris has had a disconnect. Now, that if it was ready for the Olympics, could help because people could stay in hotels not as close to the centre and could maybe uh, spread out a bit more. But it is not the case. But once once it's done, it will really create new business districts and um, hopefully make people travel a bit out of the usual areas uh, that one does when you go to Paris. I, I think what I, I also... I mean, it's a shame that's not going to be finished, but I assume part <laughs> of the push to get it done was for the Olympics. And, and that is actually, you know, I, I feel like I'm constantly reading things about cities not wanting to host the Olympics uh, for probably fair enough reasons. But I also think it does give these cities an incentive to try and finish these massive civic projects. So for me, it's it's like regardless of whether these metro upgrades or this, you know, uh, Grand Paris, Paris Express is, is finished before the Olympics or not, to me, it kind of feels irrelevant for two weeks. What's important is that work has gone towards this. And I think you can also see this in the preparations for the LA Games in, in 2028. They've, they've rolled out this hugely ambitious plan to completely reshape and rethink, rethink LA's um, you know, uh, public transport network. I, I'm very sceptical that that's going to be finished in time. But the fact that they are making an effort and taking these steps and actually starting to implement these plans, I think, is is really, really important. So, you know, uh, Andrew, as, as much as it sounds like you would be a, a great, uh, you know, press person for Anne Hidalgo, I think, I think <laughs> you know, maybe you could help her with some of her strategy, perhaps, uh, and communication. Um, I, I think the fact that all of this is happening and it is being talked about is ultimately a good thing. I, I, I do like her approach. I think she's managing expectations. Paris, nothing works. Everything's terrible. Um, we should move along uh, finally in our urbanism roundup, Nick, to, an, well, it, it's it's almost tautology to say an excellent idea from Australia because all our people's ideas are excellent. Um, 
I'm not saying Portuguese people don't have excellent ideas. I'm uh, just saying that... I didn't all... say anything. Carlotta, was your cough button not working? I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying <clears throat> all Australian ideas are excellent, Carlotta. This is an excellent idea, though, I think, Nick, because it is increasingly common uh, in big, important cities around the world that they have become monstrously expensive to live in, but especially for people to rent in. Uh, and attached to that is the fact that renting is not only expensive, it's miserable because... People are beholden to landlords who are often less than scrupulous. Uh, this idea which you are about to introduce, Nick, seems like such a good and obvious one that I'm vaguely astounded none of our people have previously had it. So it's called Know Your Landlord. Carlotta's actually the one that dug this up. So I might throw to you, Carlotta. To, uh, you, uh, Andrew, I know the good ideas come from Australia, but sometimes it takes a... Portuguese <laughs> woman to find out. <laughs> exactly. Um, it was introduced by the University of New South Wales, but Carlotta can dive into it a little bit more. Then I would love to share my thoughts on it. Uh, yeah, so it's this new initiative called Know Your Landlord. And as you hinted at, Andrew, this is all about, you know, kind of empowering renters to have the same data on prospective landlords as we as tenants are required. As most people know, if you try to rent a place almost anywhere in the world, you are required to provide references. Mm -hmm. That can be a process of its own uh, that even if you are uh, and have been a stellar tenant, all it takes is for your previous landlord not to have been great and they might not give you a reference mm -hmm. and you're in this endless cycle of trying to get into a good place. And they came up with this idea of these urbanism researchers of what if we create a platform where tenants can leave reviews of their own landlords so that if you try to rent a property, you can see what it's like to actually deal with that person as your landlord. I, for one, think it's an excellent idea. First, it's about having kind of like parity between the two parties. Mm -hmm. You're on equal level. If you are demanding to know, you know, my financial records of the past five years, give me yours so I know if you actually need to increase the rent by five pounds or not. Uh, and, um, at, and at the same time, it would actually stop a lot of the situations where you have landlords taking advantage of tenants that are not in ideal conditions. You know, we all know of landlords who ask for cash in hand, don't provide receipts, all of these things that can get people into legal trouble. But if you then are in a situation where you are on low income or perhaps um, you are just temporarily in a city, um, <coughs> this is not convenient for you. So I think it could actually, a platform like this could actually help in a lot of the issues. I think I think for me, you know, because it also involves, you know, giving reviews of the, the home or the residence that you're going to be renting. Is it energy efficient? You know, uh, are, are repairs made? Is it actually, you know, everything that it lives up to? I think I think that also is, is critical because ultimately you have these close relationships with, you know, whether you like it or not, with, with the person that you're you're renting property off. I mean, I for one would have loved to have known that the first place I moved into in London, uh, I would be paying cash in hand, which was not disclosed to me up front. And it involved me making multiple trips to the ATM uh, to, uh, to, to pay essentially my landlord. And it's like... If I had that information beforehand, and probably fairly if I had have actually looked at the contract, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would have maybe perhaps reconsidered uh, that, that rental because I think also that said a lot about the landlord themselves and um, everything, they seem to be able to fix everything themselves despite the fact that they weren't a qualified plumber, electrician, roof carpenter, uh, you know, you go on and name it. Uh, the place was falling apart, but... 
One of the things that the team also says that uh, an initiative like this could help with is also in eliminating uh, rent bidding practices and mm. bidding wars because it would disc- you would the landlord or the tenants would disclose how much they have been paying for rent in a certain property so that if the landlord decides to increase the rent, which they can after the contract ends uh, and they're not legally limited by uh, the amount that you can within a contract increase your rent, you as a prospective tenant could see if actually um, it is a fair price or not, or if you know your rent has doubled from last month to now. So I don't know. I I, I love the the name of it, and I I love the idea of giving landlords a bit of the taste for their own medicine. But uh, more than that, I think it could be a step forward into addressing the inflation and bidding wars that is happening in the housing market and to actually try to bring some sort of equity between renters and homeowners. Carlotta Ribello and Nick Manise, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, live music. I'm joined in the studio now by Rhett Miller, singer with Old 97s, named after the doomed locomotive celebrated in one of the greatest of all country songs. Old 97s have made a considerable contribution to that canon themselves since forming in Dallas a little over three decades and now a dozen albums ago. Old 97s are presently on tour celebrating that 30th anniversary and the inevitable place to start, Rhett, seems to be asking, what is your secret? 30 years, same four guys, too. That's really unusual. It is. You know, Murray and I, the bass player, we had started in Dallas when I was, I just turned 16 years old and we both were dating Jennifers and they were best friends and our Jennifers introduced us to each other and Murray recorded my first demos and produced the record I made when I was in high school. So he and I have been together longer than uh, you know eight years longer but we had to go through a number of iterations and other band members and you don't know you've gotten it right until you get it wrong a lot (laughs) and that goes for everything for the songs we were writing but of course for the band members as well we went through a bunch of and they were all fine fellows you know good human beings but it wasn't until we landed on ken bethay our guitar player and philip peoples our drummer 30 years ago and and it We laugh about it now, my wife Erica and I laugh about it, because they really are such strong-willed, strong-headed, ornery people, and they have big personalities, but they're really kind, and we really treat each other with a lot of respect. We give each other a lot of space, and it's been... You know, it's been a hard road figuring out how to make it work, but we've made it work. And there have been moments where it looked like it might not. But now here we are 30 years in, and I think we're all very grateful that it's worked. Well, on the subject of gratitude, does that help it get easier? Because it's been at least my secondhand experience talking to people who have not necessarily been in the same band all along, but have recently put bands together that they were in as younger people. And they're now all that much older, but they're back in the same band. And they just said, it's just so much easier. Everybody just gets on so much better. I imagine it's like a marriage. You you go through all the trials and tribulations and you figure out how to survive the hardest moments. And then once you've got that figured out, pfft, now it's just all gravy. Now we just get to <laughs> you know, travel around, especially in the, in the United States. We, we do so well and we've got it so sussed out. Unfortunately, with Europe, we never prioritized it early on in our band's career. So now every time we come over, we're sort of, you know, building it up a little bit as we go. But we're planning now that all of our now that all of our own kids have gone away to college and university and adult life, we're able to come over here more. So we'll be visiting y'all a lot. Do you think there's an advantage, though, for the 
musician of a certain age in in pursuing (laughs) what is broadly country music, because country music is essentially songs of experience. You can grow into that. You grow into the songs. The voices get more interesting as the singers get older. You're not obliged to jump up and down pretending you're still 19 years old. It's the Willie Nelson phenomenon. Yeah. (laughs) When I gave up my full scholarship to the very expensive Sarah Lawrence College years ago, my thinking was that rock and roll was a young man's game and mm. I got to get out there and do it now. When you, know, when you hit 30 years old, they kick you out of the fraternity or whatever. <laughs> and I don't think that's true in general with rock and roll anymore, but specifically with the kind of music we do, broadly labeled Americana or whatever, it is, it's especially forgiving. In fact, it does the thing that I think we should be doing in our society in general, which is to celebrate longevity and celebrate the wisdom accrued over years of experience. I think I've gotten better as a songwriter. And when I look around at, you know, so many people that I admire, I feel like they as well are getting better as they get older. And isn't that how it should work? Is this something you've learned or reflected on from your own podcast? You you host Wheels Off, which is a a series of conversations with songwriters and other creative types. There has been, I have noticed, a certain overlap in guests between this show and yours. Uh, The Milk Carton Kids, Margot Price and Kristen Hirsch have all sat in that chair you are sitting in. But, But what do you learn as a songwriter from talking to them about it? It's funny. I love doing wheels off, and that's a good thing because I've never made a penny off the podcast. (laughs) But the sort of unintended side effects, the great things that have come out of it have been so cool. There's an artist, Ashley Longshore, who's sort of the Andy Warhol of our time. She is a pop artist. She's incredible. She did my most recent solo album cover, The Misfit, just painted a painting because we had hit it off on the podcast. I get so much wisdom from the the guests that I talk to. Nick Hornby and Michael Chabon Mm -hmm. are both novelists that I've had on there, and they're just so great and smart and funny. Margot Price was such a great guest to get to talk to because her road to success was very different from other, from other folks. And uh, Charlie Crockett, I really love talking to him. He's somebody that came from living on the streets and busking and, you know, to having a successful career in music. And I, I'm inspired every single time I do one. And I know, as you must know, scheduling interviews and, <laughs> and doing all this stuff can be an, a, a logistical nightmare. But I find every time I do it, I'm reminded how much it's worth it. Well, finally today, we are going to reach back uh, into your catalogue quite a distance, in fact, for the song you're going to do for us. I'm I'm pretty excited about this because it's one of my favourite old 97 songs, which means it's one of my favourite songs, period, and it's getting played on my guitar. But I would be grateful if you would cue it up for us. So the song Big Brown Eyes is a song that I wrote and we recorded for our second album. We made our first album with a loan from a friend in Dallas. And for our second album, we had sort of broken through in Chicago, which is a Mm -hmm. really great city and a great music market because New York and L.A. tend to be sort of industry markets, whereas Chicago is just a big city that loves music and they love to go out and drink and all this stuff that's great when you're in your early 20s like like I was when I wrote this song. And um, I remember bringing it to the woman that ran Bloodshot Records where we did our second album. And she goes, I don't know, it's too poppy. And... um, (laughs) 
Uh, which was hilarious at the time because we were a very much a, like a bar band, uh, alt country, insurgent country band at the time. And um, this song, I felt like was the I thought it was the best song I'd ever written. So much so that when we went in to make our first major label record a year later, I insisted that the band do this song again. So with this song appears on our second and third albums. And it appears on the show today. Rhett Miller, thank you for joining us. All right. One, two. Big brown eyes and a gust of wind And the cherry burns the corner of the page That says the end is coming soon Not soon enough Restring all your guitars Pack up all your stuff Because if Robert's dad is right We might not make it through And I'd hate to go alone Oh, please pick up the phone Well, a box of red And a pill or three And I'm calling time and temperature Just for some company I wish you were here I wish I was too well, I'll drink myself to sleep Less ness I always do You don't want me anymore Since fame and fortune broke down our door You don't give me no respect What did I expect? If that phone don't ring one more time gonna lose what's left of my mind you made a big impression for a girl of your size now I can't get by without you and your big brown eyes yeah your big brown eyes yeah your big are cold her breath is warm she's a port in a storm and I'm worried now but it won't be long it takes a worried man you know to sing a worried song and I've got issues yeah like I miss you yeah Oh, and I wish I weren't so thick But I'm making myself sick If that phone don't ring one more time I'm gonna lose what's left of my mind You made a big impression for a girl of your size Now I can't get by and your big brown eyes Yeah, your big brown eyes
And that was Rhett Miller of Old 97's Live here at Midori House. Old 97's latest album, Twelfth, is generally available and enthusiastically recommended, as are the 11 that preceded it. Old 97's are on tour with a run of shows in their native Texas coming up in early December. Details at old97s.com. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock and Gunnar Gronlid. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.